Well, welcome everybody. I'm very glad to be here. It's a great honor to introduce uh, Professor Larcinese for this inaugural lecture of his professorship in the Department of Government here at the LSE. It's a bit funny to call him Professor Larcinese because I've known him for a very long time. In fact, he's one of the few people I think who has been at the LSE longer than I have. And I think that Valentino, now I demote him to Valentino, is, uh, uh, really embodies the spirit of the LSE. He asks the big questions, questions that make a difference in people's lives. And uh, today we're talking, you know, we've been told that the people are tired of experts. So all of us who are very good experts in a tiny, tiny, tiny fragment of knowledge, we're out of business. Now I was reading that the NHS is going to be staffed by volunteers because volunteers can do the job of nurses and doctors. Uh, clearly that is, doesn't sound like a good idea, but the same thing is going on in politics. Okay, there's uh, a movement against professional representatives and towards people like you and me. Well, not like you and me because we are expert, less expert than us. So Valentino is going to review the experience of Italy and the five-star movement there and discuss the pros and cons of professional representatives. Now, I don't think you want to listen from me. I think you might as well better listen to what Valentino has to say. And I really look forward to his presentation. There'll be time for questions at the end. Thank you so much. Thank you, Oriana, for the very kind introduction. Thank you all for being here tonight for my inaugural lecture. So um, let me start from the title of this talk, uh, Saving Democracy from Politician. Do we need to save democracy from politician? Taken literally, this is uh, uh, an oxymoron. We, you know, uh, there, there is no democracy without uh, professional politicians, uh, in the sense people that get elected and uh, uh, perform this uh, uh, duty on a full-time basis. So what is the point that I want to make here tonight? It's more about uh, having a, a political class which is sufficiently uh, representative and uh, diverse uh, in fact, here uh, I'm, I'm uh, quoting from Condorcet, uh, indirect despotism occurs when the people are no longer truly represented or when the legislative body becomes too unequal to them. Uh, this is not, his, not the, the year, it's the beginning uh, of the French Revolution. So uh, we may actually be in situations where when our representatives are not uh, sufficiently uh, uh, representative because they are not sufficiently equal, and I'm going to qualify this, or, uh, you know, of, uh, of the population at large. And this may become a problem for democracy. This may become a problem for democracy. In fact, what I want to do tonight is uh, uh, to specifically address some of these issues about uh, uh, representation, about uh, uh, the benefit and maybe the possible cost of having a, um, you know, a diverse representation, a representation which is uh, socioeconomically uh, diverse. I think somehow when, when we professionalize uh, politics, we have that, especially when politics is a career starting very young, these people may end up having uh, experiences 
views of the world, uh, backgrounds which are very similar, very homogeneous, and eventually this may lead them to become unrepresentative in a sense. So what I'm going to do is precisely to discuss these issues and bring some evidence here from uh, the past Italian Parliament, the Italian Parliament 2013-2018. Why I'm going to do that? I'm Italian, and so I, I'm interested in Italian politics. Uh, uh, maybe this is one reason, but uh, more importantly, I think, is because that uh, particular parliament is quite interesting um, in that he had an unusually large number of uh, what I would call amateur legislators. And, uh, and I will, I'm going to see in which sense they are uh, representative of the population, of the Italian population at large, and in which sense, how did they perform, basically, during their mandate. So, before we do this, let me show you, tell you a, bit, a little story about this man. Um, his name was Pietro Chiesa, and I'm sure you have never heard of him, right? So, who is Pietro Chiesa? Pietro Chiesa was a member of the Italian parliament, elected in 1900. What's special about Pietro Chiesa, a bit special, is that he was elected, uh, he was the first uh, person of a working class background entering the Italian parliament. And uh, he, was, uh, he, was, he came from, uh, from a uh, very poor family and he worked himself in the docks of Genoa. So when he was elected into parliament in 1900, there, were no, uh, there was no salary for MPs, and there were no expenses, right? So how could Honorable Pietro Chiesa afford being a member of Parliament and uh, performing his duty? Well, uh, it turns out that his comrades in the docks collected money for, uh, you know, to pay for his expenses, his uh, travels to Rome, and so on and so forth, his hotel, food, and everything he needed. So why would they do that? I would say at least for two reasons. The first, they were very proud of him. So Pietro Chiesa was uh, uh, one of them. He belonged to them. He shared his, their hard life, and they were very proud of him. But there was also another reason, which was that Pietro Chiesa was working for them. He was actually working in Parliament on legislation, on labor regulation, working hours, uh, labor conditions, all the things that really mattered to Honorable Chiesa and to his uh, mates, in the, in the docks, right? So this is, uh, um, now, uh, I would say, at some point, the, 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 in 1912, actually, in Italy, uh, a salary was introduced. In Britain, it was in 1910. And this is the beginning of the professionalization of politics. This is the beginning of the professional politician. So, and I think even today, when sometimes we are very critical of professional politicians, and, you know, we think that our class is not, truly representative. So I'm, what I'm going to say is, in spite of what, of what I will tell you tonight, we should never forget that the professionalization of politics has been fundamental, I mean, complement, uh, complementary to uh, democratization, to having a more inclusive uh, political class. This has been really very important. So, but now I want to ask you, would you pay today, voluntarily, I mean, because you do pay, right? But voluntarily, would you pay your own money to, for, you know, to, to, for the expenses of your MP, right? So uh, how many people would truly do that? In fact, what I want to ask you now to do is do you trust the politicians of your country? I would like to run a little survey. So you've probably been told to switch off your telephones and maybe you should switch them on now, please. 
switch on your telephone because I'd like to ask you to take part in this survey. What is the question here? Ah, I hope it works, yeah? Let's see. It does. Uh, okay, in a scale from one to five, where one is no trust at all, and five is complete trust, could you please tell me how much you personally trust politicians in your country, okay? So to join this poll, you should text democracy at the number that you see over there, 02033225822, and then please vote, okay? Okay, so let's call it, uh, let's close it. So what's the situation here? Uh, poll locked, okay? Well, uh, actually, I think, you know, 15% five, that's quite good. It's kind of, it's a very uh, kind of, on average, compared to what I'm going to show you next, I think that's, that's not bad. I don't know what exactly would be the average of this, but, you know, pretty balanced. In fact, this is, I bet this is not really a representative sample of, uh, of society at large. I'm going, let me going to show you a few things next. Anyway, so this is uh, uh, very interesting. Um, well, where is the clicker? That I left it there. Sorry. Good. So let, let's let's see. Ah, I need to to exit this. Right. Here we are. So let's see the situation in uh, uh, you know using some larger surveys. This is uh, uh, European Social Survey, which actually has a score from zero to ten. And uh, you can see here um, average scores that uh, range, you know, from uh, 3 to 5 in 2002. The blue line is 2002. And I'm showing 2002 and 2016 because in between there is the financial crisis. And as you can see, it, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not claiming any, any causality here, but we, we observe a very sharp decline in uh, southern European countries, as you can see. In fact, you know, if you think of Spain, Italy, uh, Greece, in 2002, they had the same level of trust on average as Germany, right? And Germany actually went up uh, in the last uh, 15 years. Sweden was high to, to start with, it stayed the same. But, you know, we can see here a clear uh, plummeting in southern Europe, right? In fact, Greece, the, the, the data for Greece is not 2016, it's 2012, because the European Social Society has not been run ever since. I don't know why. Exactly, maybe you can guess. So here, this is trust in uh, professions. We said the politician, being politician is a profession at the end of the day. Um, these bars indicate, again, averages of an answer to the question, essentially this is whether you have complete or high level of trust in a specific profession. You can see the firefighters, nurses, and so on and so forth, and you go through up to the bottom where you find that, again, the politician. Politician is not again, is, is last on average in this. This is a survey, actually what I'm showing here is the average of 11 European countries, okay? Okay, but this is an average. How about cross-country variation? There is cross-country variation. Well, it turns out that's not particularly important because when you look at uh, the globe, I mean, the same survey has been conducted in a number of countries here. You, you can also see what are actually the 11 European countries in this sample we've shown you before. So the politicians are the least trusted profession everywhere. Okay, there is difference. In Spain, it's 5%. It's very low. Brazil, 7 In the Netherlands, 29 right? So difference, which may also depend on the baseline level of trust in these different countries. But 
in, in general, the, poli the politician is the least trusted profession. In fact, you can see in Europe, you know, so only Sweden is the exception. In Iran, is priests. Again, <laughs> make up your mind. So it's not maybe surprising, given, given such a low level, level of trust, that being perceived as a professional politician today is a liability. Right? Being able to present yourself as an outsider it gives you an advantage. An example here, Donald Trump. This is not a Republican versus Democrat election. This is about an insider versus outsider. Right? Macron. Macron filling his list of the, for the Legislative Assembly with members of the civic society and making sure it was very clear to the public that there were not many professional politicians with him. Right? You want to take distance from. So, where does the revolt come from? Uh, first consideration, the legitimacy of elites, uh, of elites is uh, generally questioned when things do not go well. And recent empirical evidence point to the importance of changed economic climate and of increased uncertainty about the future. The literature has mostly focused on the far-right voting and has linked it with immigration, imports, and technological unemployment. Right? Now, this leads to an increased demand for protection in the form of trade barriers, limit to immigration, and more generally, a new role for state intervention in the economy, opposed to laissez-faire consensus, which has dominated the decade, decades before the crisis. Um, but the economic explanations are insufficient, for at least two reasons. First, we should ask why aren't mainstream political parties delivering the new policies demanded by declining, but still politically pivotal, lower middle classes. And second, there is widespread concern about the part of this revolt which has been uh, labeled populist, left and right populist, but we are also witnessing a non-populist revolt against the political class. Okay? In Spain, there is Podemos, but also Ciudadanos. In France, Macron. In Italy, Mario Monti, in 2013. In fact, I want to show you something about Italy 2013. I'm going to talk a lot about this specific election, that specific parliament. So let me show you this. This is, in this uh, uh, graph, I report, this is a survey of candidates in 2013 election, right? Here, on the x-axis, you have the traditional left-right dimension uh, estimated on the basis of answers to a number of questions about taxation, public services, uh, labor market regulation, and all that. And so with zero being extreme left, one being extreme right. On the vertical axis, there is another dimension, which refers to openness. Okay? Here it's uh, uh, questions about globalization, the European Union, immigration. And the z uh, one here is maximum openness, pro-globalization. Zero is uh, uh, minimum openness. Right? Now you can see here the mainstream parties. In red, the center-left coalition led by the Democratic Party. In blue the center-right coalition led by Berlusconi, right? And you can see some predictable correlations there. I mean, the left being more left uh, in, on the economic dimension and also uh, substantially more uh, open, right? With the right being uh, more right and also more closed. Okay, so of course there are differences of, these are coalitions, there are differences within these coalitions, but by and large, it's a, it's a kind of a, a very a clear correlation. Now, let's switch off the lights on the mainstream parties, metaphorically. And let's enter the two new contenders, the contenders in the 2013 election, the Five Star Movement, founded in 2009 at its first electoral appearance, and Mario Monti, Scelta Civica. Okay? Mario Monti is a, an economist, 
had been called to form a technocratic government in 2011 during a confidence crisis in the Italian public debt and decided then to run for office in this, in this election, 2013. Okay? The two entrants, we could say, one is populist, the other is technocratic. Right? And let's see how they span the political space. Now here you have, in pink, you have the five-star movement, closed on the economy, um, left on the economy, closed in terms of openness uh, to, to the external world. And here is the Monti candidates, uh, uh, right-wing, tendentially, uh, typically on the economy, and more, more open. So clearly these two parties span the political dimension, the ideological dimension in the opposite direction compared to the traditional, to the, the mainstream parties. So there is a, a, a clearly a new dimension here which is opening political competition. Right, and in fact this summarizes the average ideological positions by group. This is uh, the left, this is the five star, this is Monti, and this is Berlusconi, right? the right. Good, so, uh, now let's go back to our question. Why aren't mainstream political parties feeling the demand for new policies? And now we can have a useful analogy with the market to provide a benchmark, right? So like in markets for goods and services, the political market has a demand and supply. Voters demand policies and politicians supply them. Like in other markets, social welfare is not achieved because, in this view, this view of Anthony Downs, I'm summarizing here, because the supply is not achieved because the supply of the uh, because the supply side of the market is benevolent. Okay, firms want profit; they are not benevolent. And politicians in this model they want office; they are not benevolent. But this is not a problem. Why? The key for social welfare in this framework is competition. Okay, if elections are competitive, are open, are fair then the political system is responsive to policy demands, or at least to the policy demands of pivotal voters located at the center of the ideological spectrum. In this view, the politician is the key transmission mechanism between policy demand and implementation. So to put it here with Anthony Downs' word, the politician is a specialist in discovering, transmitting, and analyzing popular opinion. Okay? And in this view, the identity of the politician doesn't matter. It could be anyone. Okay? Now, continuing the market analogy and summarizing decades of research in economics and in political science in just a few sentences here, we can also say that the professionalization of politics brings many advantages. And this is a non-exhaustive list, right? In response, in response to the logic of labor division, specialization typically increases efficiency. Uh, a sufficiently long career generates experience and in a process of learning by doing increases the productivity and the possibility of good and wise policy making. Professional politicians are fully invested in their careers and therefore, unlike amateurs, have an incentive to do well, either because outside options are less attractive to them, to them because they are politicians, or because of the desire to leave a legacy. Right? Now, responsiveness. We said in theory politicians should be particularly responsive to the median voter, to the middle ground, right? That, that's the, what this model would suggest. But we now have good evidence, for example, for the work, work of uh, Martin Gillens and co-authors in the U.S., but evidence is now coming also from other countries, that implemented policies tend to be well correlated with the preferences of the top 10% in the income distribution, but virtually not correlated at all with the preferences of the remaining 90%. So what this graph shows, it's based on a very large number of surveys, it's a kind of a simple summary of uh, 
a longer research, research agenda, is uh, on the horizontal axis, here you have uh, the percentage favoring change in, in surveys among the population. And uh, here you have on the vertical axis, you have the probability that that specific policy is implemented. And you can see here that uh, there is a, a good correlation between uh, the percentage favoring change and the actual probability of implementing that uh, policy change, but only for high-income voters. In fact, not at all for low income. It's completely fat, even for middle income. In fact, even f up to the 90th percentile. So if you take all the population up to the 90th percentile, you will still find something which is like this, which is flat, right? Again, this is just a correlation. We can't really jump into conclusion from this. But I think it's, it's uh, some interesting findings, uh, interesting findings. So now this leads us to the populist criticism of current state of our democracies and our professional politicians. In the populist view, there is not sufficient responsiveness. The problem is lack of competition. Okay? And let me clarify why this is the problem. The most accepted and common definition of populism today is that it is an ideology contrasting the people and the elite. An implicit assumption made by the populists is that the elites do not compete for power. They are instead colluded and, to use again a market analogy, they form a cartel, we could say, right? This cartel is the establishment, a closed, colluded network of political and economic elites. Economic elites foster the career of their political allied, for example, using campaign contributions, and the political elites reward their sponsors with favorable policies. Okay? So that's essentially the cleavage in the populist, uh, in the populist narrative, okay? It's a, it's a cleavage between the elites and the people, okay? So in the populist view, the solution is to replace politicians with common people, working for ordinary citizens rather than for the elites. And then there are also institutional implications because all policy areas should be directly accountable to the people, again, and the distance between the voters and the policymakers should be minimized both in an institutional sense and also in a socio-demographic sense. Well, but responsiveness is not representation, okay? And this is very clearly stated by Edmund Burke 250 years ago. Your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment. And he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. So representation is a contested concept, but for our purposes today, we can safely define it as a situation which arises when a representative acts in the interest of the represented. So when compared with the represented, however, a representative can often have superior competence, better access to information, more incentives to study and understand the problems. Therefore, a representative can sometimes act in the best interest of the represented by not responding to their demands. And this raises a fundamental dilemma in representation theory. Precisely because of the asymmetries between represented and representatives, how can I understand if the representative is actually working for me and representing my interest? And therefore, how can we make representatives accountable? Now, this leads us to the technocratic view. Okay? The technocratic view of mainstream politics. In this view, the problem of contemporary democracies is just the opposite of what we have in the populist view. Political institutions, in this view, professional politicians, are too responsive to voters' demand. That is, they pander to the demands of misinformed, short-sighted voters. 
In the technocratic view, experts are preferable to professional politicians because, well, first of all, they're experts, so they, they know their stuff, uh, but also because they have independent reputation, clear outside options, and so don't need to respond to the public. For some policy areas, this also means institutional insulation from the public, such as in central banking and regulation. Both the populist and technocratic views tend to ignore that there's something in common. They tend to ignore societal conflict and to assume the existence of a common good. It is not surprising, I think, that in both views, both the populist view and the technocratic view, there is little scope for intermediate bodies, political parties, unions, associations, lobbies. They are obstacles to the common good, which is either, which is implemented by whom? Either the leader, the people's leader, in the populist view, or the expert, okay? But in any case, all these other things are obstacles, okay? Noise. Now, these two opposite diagnoses of the problem faced by democracies today, uh, with their corresponding solutions, are grounded in two opposite views of the distribution of competence and knowledge in society. And these are, in fact, I want to show you, these are very old debates. Right? One view is platonic. Knowledge is concentrated in some segments of the population. And we should delegate decision-making power to the competent, okay, the expert. If I'm sick, I need a doctor, not the opinion of the majority. Right? Now, Aristotle would not agree with that. Aristotle, and this is a nice quote from Aristotle, there is this to be said for the many. Each of them, by himself, may not be of a good quality, but when they come together, it is possible that they might surpass, collectively and as a body, the quality of the few best. It's a very strong statement, right? Here, it is assumed that information is dispersed in the population and that the democratic method helps aggregating this dispersed information, this dispersed knowledge, in ways which would be impossible even for the best, for the most competent individuals. In this view, the doctor example is misleading. Right? This is not the way democracy works. You form better judgment when you hear more voices. Now, this idea has been formalized in the so-called information aggregation literature, so there is a vast literature on this, but I want to propose you yet another analogy with markets, which is uh, that this idea can be associated with the von Hayek view, that the superiority of market with respect to central planning lies precisely in the ability of markets to aggregate dispersed information through the price mechanism. This was what von Hayek taught with respect to what was the advantage of the market with respect to central planning. Now, in parallel, this could also be the virtue of the democratic method compared to other ways to exercise power. It is, in this view, there is, not only there is no trade-off, okay? There is no trade-off between competence and representation, but more inclusive representation could help reaching better decisions and formulating better policies. Now, let's go back to the problem of commitment and credibility faced by our representatives, given that for many reasons it is hard for me to monitor my representative, then the best thing I could do is to select a representative with preferences which are as much as possible aligned with mine. So this person should be somebody, somebody like me, in the sense of acting in the same way I would act, 
in that position, right? Provided I had the same competence and the same information, of course, right? And this leads us to the idea of descriptive representation. If we all look for representatives which are like us, then representation should reflect society. So in a sense, representation should describe society. But what does like us mean, okay? This expression, I think, is amenable to various interpretations. And here I want to suggest that its meaning varies over time depending on what we believe are the relevant or salient characteristics that create a link between the preferences of the represented and those of the representative. So what is like us? When ideologies are broad visions of the world and the boundaries between parties are clearly defined by such ideologies, then the problem of descriptive representation is simplified. It's simplified into the problem of ideological representation, right? The ideological link between representatives and represented is sufficient, to, and we can ignore other descriptive characteristics. Now, today, we care a lot about the descriptive characteristics of representatives. We want such and such number of women. We want such and such number of ethnic minorities. This is all fine, okay? But I'm asking... Why? Why today we have changed our focus from ideology to other socioeconomic characteristics? So, in an era, I think, of consensual politics, and consensual politics, I mean the pre-crisis era, okay? Mainstream left and mainstream right share broadly similar views of the world. And anyway, the boundaries between the different political parties are less clear, then voters... They, they look, I look for somebody like me. Anyway, remember, this is always the point of representation. I want somebody like me. But so, what is like me now? Well, somebody who is socioeconomically like me. Okay? With characteristics, they represent me in a socioeconomic or sociodemographic sense. And here I want to show you these two pictures. I don't know if uh, some of you may recognize these two people here. And just to give an example of what I'm going to show you later with the data. So uh, this, uh, the first is Enrico Berlinguer, in case you haven't seen him, he's here, this guy there. He was the leader, the secretary of the Italian Communist Party in the 70s, and I would say probably one of the most respected figures in the history of the Italian left. Communist voters were predominantly blue-collar working class. A Berlinguer came from an upper-middle class, actually aristocratic Sardinian family. He was a noble. Although, you know, uh, the Communist Party had more working class MPs than other parties, its parliamentary representation remained mostly middle class. None of the communist voters, which were predominantly working class, however, would have questioned the good faith and representativeness of the communist MPs, which were predominantly middle class, or of Berlinguer himself, right? Now, on the right, you have Luigi Di Maio, who is the current leader of the Five Star Movement. So his background and his CV are much more ordinary. So he is someone like us in a different sense, in a socioeconomic sense. And I, what I will show you in a moment is, in fact, this is precisely what uh, the, the Five Star Movement uh, representatives in Parliament are. They are, in fact, much, much closer, if you want, much, representing much better the distribution of the Italian population in a number of dimensions, a number of socioeconomic and demographic characteristics. Good. So, before we do that, let me recap here, right? We, I want to show you some numbers with the remaining time, but before, uh, I want to have another poll, okay? Uh, so that I can also have a sip of water in the meantime, right? Uh, but that's, uh, uh, let, so, what, what, let's summarize the consequence of having a more inclusive and diverse representation for the quality of collective decision. So, we have seen, I mean, we really, I'm simplifying a lot here. 
I'm sure that you know, uh, political theorists, philosophers, um, scholars of uh, ancient Greek philosophy will all be horrified by, by you know, what I'm showing you now. But you know, uh, let's, let's simplify things a bit and say, okay, there is uh, one view, which is the elitist view, the Plato trade-off view, which is that the quality of collective decision goes down when you have a more representative political class because, you know, essentially these people become increasingly less competent, okay? And then you have the Aristotle win-win situation, where in fact, actually, as I said, there is information aggregation, so a more representative political class actually could lead to better quality of collective decision, okay? So what I want to ask you again is this question, are you Platonic or Aristotelian? I'd like to know in this room what you think about what is the most plausible view. And I have no, no prior on this, to be honest, right? So, what? Okay, so, response to what I said. This is close. Well, overwhelming majority here is Platonic. And well, this is the LSE, a place of, of experts. Uh, you couldn't possibly say... Uh, okay, and, and okay. don't count on me giving you any evidence on this. This is too difficult, to be honest, for me to sort, really to sort out in empirical terms. I'm, what I'm going to show you is way more modest than anything trying to address this very, very important question. But it, it's interesting, you know, to have your views. So, what I want to show you now is what happened in the Italian Parliament 2013-18 in experienced politicians, right? So it, it, it's very typical that new MPs are selected from, uh, from a pool of potential candidates, which is uh, a substantial political experience, okay? And I think what is uh, very interesting about, uh, so it's typical you go through experience in local administration, party leadership, uh, and so on and so forth, right? So I think this is a very interesting case, Parliament to study, because he had an unusually large number of MPs with basically no prior political experience, okay? So um, in the 2013 election, a party, and uh, I know they don't like to be called a party, but anyway, a party, the Five Star Movement, <clears throat> which had been founded only four years earlier, 2009, became the largest party in Italy, with a vote share above 25%. And this is the largest vote share of any European party at its first electoral appearance, with the second and third being Berlusconi in 94, I think, right? Importantly for us, membership at the time was uh, relatively small, there were few members, and the conditions to be a candidate were quite restrictive in terms of past membership. I don't go, don't go into the details of this, okay? And candidates were selected using online primaries. So uh, it was then quite easy to be selected to become a parliamentary candidate. Some candidates uh, made it to the list, to the parliamentary uh, list, with less than 20 votes in the primaries. Even the top candidates barely reached 200 or 300 votes. Because of the largely unexpected vote share that the Five Star Movement obtained in the end of the election, sometimes 30 or 40 votes in the primaries turned out to be enough to reach a sufficiently high position in the ballot, it was a closed ballot, to be elected in parliament. Right? So it was really, you know, some people really became members of parliament almost by chance, I would say. Right? So the Five Star Movement managed to achieve a parliamentary representation of 163 MPs between the lower chamber and the Senate. So a substantial representation. Uh, uh, almost all of them had no 
uh, administrative or political experience whatsoever. So and these were completely unknown people. In a sense, they were even unknown to each other. No, this was an internet-based party. They never met before. I mean, this is, no, they were at the local level, maybe, but they really, there was no sense in which you could have a leader. But there was a leader, it was Beppe Grillo, but he was not in Parliament, right? So um, what we will do now is to see if these amateurs turned politician, well, uh, almost by chance, where somehow uh, uh, we'll try to address a few questions here. Who are these people, basically? Okay, ask who are these people? Who voted for them? And eventually, I'll try to document their legislative activity and performance, comparing it with the, you know, the activity and performance of their more experienced colleagues. So let me start with, uh, um, with uh, this uh, slide here, the political experience of elected MPs. There was a very large turnover at that election. Almost two-thirds of uh, new MPs were new, were you know, newly elected. Now you have that uh, uh, the left... Uh, coalition led by the Democratic Party elected almost 550 members of parliament, again between Senate and Chamber and lower chamber, of which, you know, uh, slightly more than 150 in this green rectangle here were re-elected. All the others were new. Okay? So very large new, very large uh, change in the, in the representation of the left in that election, but most of them actually had some administrative and party experience. Few of them didn't, but an overwhelming majority did. The Berlusconi party didn't do so well. In fact, it managed to re-elect uh, the same number of uh, members as the left, but, you know, elected fewer new members. And again, almost all of them had some uh, previous experience. This is the five-star movement. Almost all of them had no experience or negligible experience. Monti is here. It's also a new party. So Monti is mixed back because, as you know, half of this uh, was less successful than the five star in that election. But about half of MPs, slightly more than half, were again with no political experience. But he also had some people, uh, you know, that uh, actually some some re-elected people because some people chose some uh, some standing MPs chose to to stand again with Monti with the Monti list. Okay. So uh, this is the situation. Now let's look at the profession of these people. When we look at the profession, I've divided these professions into six groups, and it's not easy always to classify these groups, you know, some, some, but somehow uh, these are what I call the intellectuals, so university professors, uh, journalists, uh, teachers. Uh, um, in orange, you have the managers and entrepreneurs. In uh, uh, gray, you have the professional politicians, and professional in the sense that these are the people that really never did any other job in life. They just did politics all their life. So all of these are politicians, of course, right? But these people specifically kind of specialized in politics since the beginning of their life, their career. In yellow, you have the professions, mostly lawyers, but also doctors, engineers, architects. In blue, you have what I call here routine on manual, just to use a sociological classification. So basically, white-collar workers not in a managerial position, not in a top position. Okay? And in green, you have the others. Basically, anything that couldn't fit in these other categories is, goes into the others. But mostly, what is there? It's, it actually, you can see that it's very few people. In the left is three or four. In each, part, in each one of these parties, three or four people. Right? It could be blue-collar, Unemployed, out of the labor force, students, 
right? This is actually, and now you see, let's go through these four main coalitions here. Huh? So the left predicts, there is a, first, the two mainstream parties, clearly a difference between the left and the right. I mean, it's a predictable way. The left relies more on professional politicians than the right. The right has more managers and entrepreneurs and more people coming from the professions. The left represents a little more, bit more the intellectuals, certainly more the routine non-manual people. But all, all of them have very few of these other categories. Now, Monty, Monty is, uh, you know, overwhelmingly managers and entrepreneurs. Uh, in this sense, it's like the, 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 the right on steroids, right? And then you have, uh, you have a profession, the, the intellectuals, mostly university professors, right? So many university professors. So clearly the technocratic party, few of the other groups, right? And you can see how completely different is the uh, group of the five-star uh, movement, right? So in fact, uh, no professional politicians, okay, that's not surprising. Very few managers, entrepreneurs, some intellectual professions, pretty much like the others, okay, not very different, uh, but overwhelming compared to the others, rep uh, representation of uh, routine on manual and others. In fact, together, these people, these two groups, which are almost negligible in other parties, especially in the right, uh, reach about 60% of their representation, parliamentary representation. Okay. So now let me show you how this goes into an historical perspective. Because if we start from 1948 and uh, you create exactly the same parliament, the same classifications and go through until today, basically, you see uh, in, in green and in yellow, you have the others and the routine on manual. You see how big a jump we have had in 2013. So these people were typically, you know, no more than 10% of representation, parliamentary representation, they are now about 30%. In fact, this has also, also been confirmed in the last election this year. It's the same, same thing. Now, I said this is unprecedented, except now, if you look earlier, you go to the beginning of, uh, from unification, 1861, you will notice that something like that happened in 1921, just before fascism took power, right? So there was, in 1921, this was the introduction of universal suffrage and all that, you had uh, incoming legislator coming from these groups, way more than before. Uh, then you have the fascist uh, somehow here in between, so this is uh, a clear, clear break. Now, this, this, I think this shows you a number of things which are maybe unrelated to what we are dis discussing today, but you, know, you can see here the decline of the aristocracy. The light blue is the aristocrats, they go down, basically replaced by managers and entrepreneurs, the orange group. You can see the rise of the professional politicians. I told you that uh, a pay was introduced in 1912, and here you start, you, you start seeing professional politicians. Then, they, of course, they, there is fascism in between. And then, again, you have the rise of professional politicians, maybe the fall of professional politicians in the last few elections, right? So, um, okay, we said professions. But profession is something. Uh, we can get uh, other information from income. So... Uh, we, we put all the lawyers together, right? These are lawyers. But, you know, there is the lawyer who earns uh, millions, and there is the lawyer who barely survives, right? So we have, uh, although they, you know, from a sociological point of view, they are lawyers, but they can be very different lawyers. So let's have a look at income, right? So by income here, I mean the income when they enter parliament, okay? The Italian parliament is very generous. These people are really well paid, among the best, well, the best paid MPs in the world. 
So what we uh, get information from is their tax declaration when they enter parliament. Okay, 2013, tax declaration 2012. So what we can we, we look at is only the new members of parliament. Okay, the other members of parliament declare you know, the parliamentary income and, and other stuff. But, uh, so let's look at the new entrants. Who are these new entrants? Okay. Oh, I forgot one piece here. Okay. Oh, the occupational status. Maybe we'll... Uh... So what are these new entrants? Uh, this is the average income of, uh, of, uh, uh, in Italy in 2013, 16,000 euros. And the five-star representatives had almost exactly the same mean income. Now, you can see here the, the, the income uh, of Northern League representatives, CEL, it's another group of the left, the Democratic Party. This is PDL, is Berlusconi. Okay? And here we have Scelta Civica, this is the Monti group, topping 250,000 euros on average. An average, okay? So I'm not deriving any conclusion from this. This is purely descriptive. Of course, you can take any conclusion you want. Of course, you know, these people uh, with the Monty MPs must be very successful, very or probably excellent, right, in their job. And we may think, okay, this ma these are maybe the people we want to see in Parliament. Huh? At the same time, when you have an income which is maybe 16 times the average of the Italian population, you know, you start becoming a bit unrepresentative in a sense, okay? That, 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 could be, that could become a problem. You can clearly see the trade-off here uh, between, between the, the, the excellence, if you want, and, you know, the representativeness. So, uh, okay, in case you think that this is due uh, to some outliers, well, look at this. What I'm showing you here is the per some percentiles. This is the percentile, which means, you know, in blue you have the bottom 25th percentile. Uh, when you go at the, at the median, you have the med at the orange, you have the median. In gray, you have the 75th percentile, and in yellow, the 90th percentile. And you know, the income distribution of five-star members of parliament is almost a, a, a random draw, you know, random sample of the Italian population. If you take the Italian population, randomly draw people out of this population, you will probably get a distribution of, uh, not population, tax declarations. Of course, you will get a distribution which is exactly like that, right? And you can see how different it is from the other MPs. Other new MPs here, of course, on average, they go to 180,000. This is, of course, due a lot to, you know, some, some groups specifically, there are differences, but you can see how different they are. So before I skip the slide, which is this, occupational status. Okay? Another thing I can say about occupation is we want to compare this a little bit with the Italian labor force, right? So these are, this is a profession at the end of the day. So now I use a different sort of classification. Just trust me. I've used high occupational status in, in orange, intermediate in gray, and uh, uh, low in yellow. Okay, these are predictable, you know, type of jobs, as you would expect, right? So this is the Italian labor force. The Italian labor force means that you have these three categories, plus in blue you have the unemployed. People in the labor force, but not employed in any of these categories. And here you have the parliamentary representation, again, according to the coalitions. Clearly differences. The left coalition is different from the right coalition. Right and Monti are pretty much the same. They massively overrepresent the high occupational status. The left gives higher representation to intermediate occupational status. All of them give no representation, basically, to low occupational status and, you know, these other categories, right, which 
Well, here we say in the labor force is uh, unemployed, but when we come to parliamentary representation, we include here what? We also include, uh, you know, well, students, uh, so people which are not uh, out of the labor force, which would not appear here because they are out of the labor force, students and, uh, uh, and so on and so forth, right? So, again, you can see basically the representation or representativeness of this group, of the five-star group, is kind of much closer to the Italian labor force, although, again, Underrepresenting the low occupational status by large margin, but if you kind of uh, so there is a, basically this is a party where which is dominated by this intermediate occupational status, uh, which basically represents high occupational status and people out of the labor force in ex ex pretty much the same proportion as they appear in the Italian labor force. Okay, in the Italian population. Right. So. Um, Education, education, there is, you know, uh, they're not very different on education levels. So here I classify uh, in blue, below high school, orange, high school, university. So this is kind of, uh, uh, universities in gray and uh, postgraduate in yellow. And when you look at the parliamentary representation, they are all better educated than the Italian population. Okay, Italian population still more than 50% is the title which is below uh, high school. Okay, and then maybe not surprisingly, there is some positive uh, selection in terms of education. There is a difference. In fact, Monti is by far, is, is, uh, this is a, actually a statistically significant difference, is, is the party with the most graduate and postgraduate uh, representatives compared to the others. You can see here the bar the people that, uh, basically, Monte has no people below high school and very few with high school. But by and large, the difference between these groups are not overwhelming compared to other things I've shown you before. Okay, so who voted for this tip? So this is a, a, a more inclusive representative. More inclusive representative. This is for sure. Representatives which are more similar to the Italian population. Who voted for them? Again, briefly. Uh, well, this is uh, uh, the relationship between the change in unemployment at the provincial level between 2008 and 2013 and uh, the share of vote for the five-star movement in uh, 2013, right? So uh, change in unemployment is from the beginning of the crisis, basically, 2008, to the date of the vote. And unemployment has gone up almost everywhere, as you can see, and in some cases by a lot, by 10% or so. And there is a very clear relationship between the growth in unemployment and the vote share of this party. In fact, this is a very robust relationship. Even, you know, doing fancier things with the data, this relationship remains there. The same is true for income per capita. Okay? When we look at income per capita from tax declarations at the provincial level, again, now, of course, it's the opposite. P uh, can, uh, provinces that experience a larger growth in income per capita in those years uh, voted less for the five-star movement. And if, in case you wonder, this does not depend on this outlier here, which is the province of Bozen in uh, northern Italy. It does not depend on that. Try so. Good. But let's, let's have a look at some survey data. Okay? Survey data, again, we want to see if, uh, uh, now, what is the correspondence? We know that these people who were elected were mostly, you know, from intermediate uh, uh, occupational status. So how about the people that voted for them? This is from the Italian National Election Study. Well, the people that voted for them, as you can see, there is a very clear correlation between uh, going uh, from high occupational status to low occupational status. So clearly, overwhelmingly, I mean, substantially higher probability to vote for this party if you are in a low occupational status. But also there is a very clear, actually this is something funny happened to this slide here, there should have been 
something uh, which was uh, the age of these people. So that's why. So this was uh, below 45. So the bottom line here is below 45, this bottom group here. And uh, uh, above, you have above 45. 45 being the median age in Italy. And the yellow is the proportion of votes for the five star. Red, abstention. And green, all the other parties. Now you can see that there is a very clear generational divide here. Okay, so very clearly, younger people voted at a much higher probability to vote for this party. This is also an internet-based party. So of course, maybe it was much easier for these people to learn about this party and so on and so forth. Good, but this is, you know, clearly, in both cases anyway, there is a, a very uh, clear relationship also with occupational status to the point, in fact, these two effects reinforce each other. So if you are young, so below 45, and from a low occupational status, the probability that you voted for the five-star movement is uh, about 43-44%, right? Uh, now you add that this is also the group with the highest probability of abstaining, about 20%. And you have that by a large margin, in this group, people, the, the, the five-star movement had a majority of the vote, of the people that actually voted. Because all the other parties together didn't reach, you know, uh, what, 35% or something like this, right? So by a large margin, they alone, they were... Uh, got a higher share than all the other parties combined. So in, this was a generational revolt, if you think, among other things. The, who are these low occupational status people? These are mostly people below age 45, in precarious jobs, uh, not very well paid, uh, probably you know, unable to buy a house and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, this is uh, clearly, I would say, both a social and a generational revolt at the same time. So, but good, so far, more inclusive representation. These are the people that voted for these uh, candidates, for these uh, members of parliament. But we want to say something about how, about the performance of these uh, of this, uh, uh, representatives, okay? So because more inclusive representation may come at the cost of reduced competence. This is the trade-off that we are trying to discuss tonight, right? So to measure legislative activity here, I will use an indicator which has been elaborated by the Open Policy Association. They call it productivity index. I call it activity index, but it's the same index, actually, produced by them, because I think production in Parliament remains still hard to measure, but this is a fairly good uh, measure of activity. Okay, the Open Policy Indicator is based on a very large comprehensive and detailed set of variables. For example, one is the number of bills sponsored or co-sponsored by a member of parliament. Uh, also, whether these bills have been approved or not. And also, whether this approval has been bipartisan or not. I mean, you get different scores for each one of these uh, possibilities, right? And then you have uh, other scores for amendments, speeches, attendance, and much more, right? So the final indicator is actually based on the aggregation of 74 separate variables. Now, one caveat. No indicator is perfect, and legislative activity is not the only metric to evaluate a representative, right? So there are many other things we may want to think about how we evaluate our representatives. But keeping these caveats in mind, I think it is fair to try to estimate how much our representatives are working for us. And legislative activity, without any doubt, is uh, the main task of uh, people we send in Parliament. 
Right, so here we have the average. The average suggests, this is again, the, now this is at the party level, because what's relevant here is the parliamentary group, right? We are talking about parliamentary groups, uh, shifted from elections to uh, parliament. Uh, so here, the Berlusconi group is uh, kind of on average, uh, uh, group with, with the lower of, of, of this lot here at least, uh, productivity, average productivity, and the five star is actually slightly better than the Monti and the Democratic Party on average. Okay, this is the average activity. I, know I, I use productivity, but you should say activity. Okay, on average, they didn't do too bad. But I want to show you another thing, which is how distributed is this activity in the parliamentary group. Now, if we look at the 20th percentile, so at the bottom of the distribution, five stars are doing much better than the others. So there are basically no shirkers. You know, people are really putting an effort. Even the people that are at the bottom of the distribution of productivity, they are doing you know, quite well compared with other groups. Now we go to the median, this orange, they are still doing better than the other groups. right? When we go to the 80th percentile, so now we focus more on the upper part of the distribution, you know, on those that are more productive, now you know, they look more similar. Berlusconi is still behind, right? the group of Berlusconi, but Monti now slightly better than the others. When we go to the 90th percentile, now we see that the mainstream parties actually seem to do slightly better than the five-star movement. And when we go to the 95th percentile, so really those very few members of parliament, which are extremely productive, we see that all the mainstream parties, uh, including the Berlusconi, which had probably many shirkers, you know, uh, are uh, doing better than the five-star parliamentary group. So what is the meaning of this? Well, the, the five-star uh, group has a very compressed distribution of activity, okay? Very compressed. So you, find, you don't find people with very low productivity. You don't find people with very high productivity either. So it's very compressed. This is, may also come because they have, you know, uh, shifting uh, uh, roles in the, um, you know, they, they take turns in, in, um, in leadership positions. But maybe it's simply due to experience. In a sense, you know, we will see. We will see how, what happens in the next few legislators if somehow experience can really compensate for other things. So, so far, I think that this, what we can certainly say, it's just a descriptive uh, statistic, what I'm reporting, is that the distribution is clearly more, more compressed. Let me show you the evolution over time, and I'm really about to conclude now, so I, I, I'm almost done. Right? So the evolution over time, cumulated legislative activity over time, in red, the Democratic Party, blue Berlusconi, green Monti, uh, black Five Star. So this shows that, as we know, by, by, at some point, they become, on average, this is all averages, more productive, slightly more productive than these other two groups, and substantially more productive than the Berlusconi group, right? But it's interesting to see what's the evolution of this uh, activity, right? What is the evolution? Well, if you look at the first year, this is kind of very small differences, right? But they're lagging behind for the first 12 months. They're clearly lagging behind all the other groups. The Monte group is the best, right? In fact, you also see, you know, this is, uh, um, um, so, yeah, this, this, these are somehow, uh, if we decompose this indicator in sub-indicator, for example, if you look at the number of bills that they propose, right? Much fewer than the other groups. So they are, they are clearly less active. They are proposing fewer bills. Proposed, no. So, however, after a while, and here I'm showing you in large the months from 13 to 36, they catch up quite quickly. Okay? By the, the end of the third year in Parliament, they are at about, on average, again, on average, at the same level as the Monte Group, on average. Last slide I want to show you is this. 
this uh, distinction between uh, what I call here the veterans, uh, which is uh, uh, this uh, line in orange, the five star, which is in uh, black, and the new, uh, but not five star, new elected members, but not five star, which is this other line here. So the five star members always outperform the other new MPs. Why is this the case? Well, I think one explanation is that they had no seniors. So you see, you, you have, when you have seniors in parliament, these people take responsibility. They, they are the one that will actually make, propose and take leadership roles, sit in committees and do all that. So they, are, they arrive in parliament. They don't even know each other. They just have to organize things. And they have to take leadership positions, right? So they have to, and in a sense, this leads probably to more productivity and also possibly to learning faster because you are really there on the, on the front line, right? Uh, although you have no experience. And in fact, uh, faster to the point that by the end they outperform even the incumbents. On average, okay, the incumbents, huge variance. Some incumbents, they go there, they've been in parliament for so long, they don't do anything. They just go and sit. Others are really the, the one very productive. So this is just an average. You know? On average, they outperform even the income. So let me come to, mm, to the conclusions. Right? So, amateurs turn politicians. I think I've, I've, I've shown you only some indicators. We could mention other indicators. For example, the likelihood of being involved in scandals, the party cohesion, rebellions, and so on and so forth. A number of indicators suggest that these amateurs turning politicians didn't do a terrible job after all, right? They started slow, needed time to catch up, and, uh, but by within ter uh, their third year in parliament, on average, they were performing not worse than the average of the other groups. So in other terms, I think, and I don't want to generalize here, but this suggests that becoming a decent legislature is not like becoming a neurosurgeon. You know, it does, you know, it takes a few years. You need to learn what you have to do there, but it's not the same thing as, you know, uh, uh, having to study for 10 years or more. Uh, this is, of course, one other caveat, is relative to the activity of the other groups, what I've shown you, right? So if somebody here thinks that uh, there has been a decline in the quality of the political personnel over time, and I know that you know, some people in Italy suggest precisely that, that this is the case, then at least we could say that these amateurs did not add to the decline, which maybe is already occurring. Right? So, and again, it's not my intention here to draw any conclusion about the quality of the legislation which has been passed or proposed, the actual policy proposal, etc. Okay? And I would certainly not generalize too quickly. For example, there is a big difference between legislative and executive activity. Okay? And we will see. We'll see what happens. Now I'm concluding, really. So, we are often reminded that populism is a threat to democracy, and that's a possibility. Populism is a thin ideology, and as such, can also be found in authoritarian movements. But not all populists are the same. And in fact, I think populism has basically become a buzzword which puts together very different political parties, ideologies, and political leaders. I don't think that this concept helps us much as a concept if we use it in such an indiscriminate way. In any event, populism today, however dangerous it could be, is a symptom rather than the disease. And like all symptoms, I think it's there to warn us and uh, actually sometimes even to facilitate the recovery. 
On the other side, uh, there is a threat to democracy coming also in the form of the resurgent, resurgent elitist rhetoric, suggesting, like in the 19th century, that ordinary citizens are too ignorant to govern themselves wisely. And we should reject these claims in the strongest possible terms. I think, on the contrary, it's worth asking if the legitimacy of our institution institutions and the trust in democracy or in our politicians uh, would not benefit from having a more inclusive and diverse political class. Thank you. Thank you for a very wonderful lecture, Volla, and a lot. And as uh, in the style of every true academic, uh, Valentino set up a research agenda and secured this job for many years to come by leaving us with a question. Uh, we can take questions from the audience. We'll take maybe in groups of uh, three. Uh, please introduce yourself and keep it brief because we have about 20 minutes. Uh, dear Professor, I've really been impressed about your presentation and uh, I think it's quite inspiring in a, in a way and it shows something that uh, go against what the media uh, say to us. I mean the media that we read uh, here in London from Italy. So my point is, that, uh, do you think what you call at the beginning of your presentation the establishment that basically um, is, uh, on a, every day is, is blaming uh, the Five Star Movement and every day is basically they say what you just said about ignorance or about uh, other things that uh, basically are uh, neglecting these people as not uh, skilled enough? Do you think this kind of... Um, tendency of the establishment will, in a, in a way, stop this, um, this five-star movement that, in a way, they are trying this learning by doing, and uh, they are showing, as you said in your um, analysis, they are showing that they are producing a more active legislative um, uh, work, or do you think that uh, the result will, in a way, uh, uh, give pave the way for a more sustainable uh, government. Thank you. Maybe my mic was off. Uh, could you please introduce yourselves before you ask the questions? Thank you. That normally puts everybody off. My name is Alex. I work as an independent scrutineer, so that runs the ballots that are not the political ballots in the UK. My question is, doesn't everyone start out as not a politician? Surely no one, even our MPs who were asked that for most of their lives, originally were university students. So does the age that these people enter politics matter as much uh, in your research as their other backgrounds? Um, my name's Chris Crawford. I'm just a member of the public. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I hear that in Italy um, the league that won fewer votes than Five Star at the most recent election um, has become the dominant partner in the government. Is that correct? And if it is, could it be anything to do with the relative naivety of the Five Star MPs? So, uh, let, me, let me say, let me start from the last questions. I, I don't know, because, you know, in a sense... Um, I don't think I can give you any sort of uh, informed answer to this question more than what you would learn from um, public debate. So I, I, in a sense, I don't really know if there is 
naivety. So in fact, what I've shown you is uh, legislative activity, which I think is a measure of interest for the citizens. Now, politics is a complicated uh, business, and of course there is a strategy and there are other things, and maybe there is naivety on the side of these amateurs, that's, but that's, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to measure that in any way. Uh, we can discuss about these things, but I, I don't think I could give you any a precise answer. This poss it's a possibility. It's clearly very debated uh, in, pu in public debate, but I, I don't know, to be honest. Um, does the fact that uh, people enter politics matter? I, again, I mean, politics is, for most people, is a vocation. I, I don't think there is anything, in fact, I think nothing that I really said is to suggest that the politicians are, um, are you know, the culprits here. It's, it's, that's, that's not really my point. My point is that maybe the, the, even the selection into politics follows uh, maybe certain routes that eventually may end up making these people less representative. They are certainly not representative maybe from a vocational point of view because not everyone is interested in politics. So it, it's normal that there, there will be some difference, at least in this vocation. I think that I'm, I'm truly convinced that when, when people, if uh, most politicians start their career very young, I mean, what is the typical career? You start maybe in a think tank as an aide to an MP. Uh, in Italy, people would do some experience in local administrations, which are typically more important here because it's a more decentralized system and so on and so forth. So you do all these things, and that's all fine. But eventually, again, the problem is this may lead to increased homogeneity, and I think maybe, especially when people start doing this very young, they end up being somehow a different a, a, a group what, what we call a class for itself, right? So, but that's, uh, again, that's uh, nothing, nothing, I would certainly not suggest that there is anything wrong with this vocation, per se. Um, again, uh, coming to your answer also, I, I really don't know. I mean, also, the establishment is a concept which, again, is, is used very much in the populist uh, rhetoric. I'm not saying that uh, um, I really want to use the, this concept uh, and... Uh, um, what, what will happen in the future, we will see. I really have, have you know, that's, I, I don't think I, I could answer this question using any of the instruments that would uh, qualify my activity more than what you can hear, you know, in, in general, right? Any more questions? One at the back? Do you want to ask first? Because by the time. Uh, okay. I'm Roberto, I'm Italian. Uh, so I know very well the environment of politics in Italy. I don't think that national populism is a threat to democracy, but I think that it is a threat to liberal democracy and open democracy. Uh, do you think that there is uh, some um, uh, intellectual or educational divide that uh, identifies this kind of national populism? As a matter of fact, uh, all over the world, uh, politicians are an elite. And this is what uh, the national populism uh, uh, will, uh, would, would like to uh, negate. Very well. It's the gentleman at the end. Question. Hi. Hello. Uh, my name's Tom. Um, I was interested in uh, your sort of conclusions about looking at the type... Sorry, of... can you speak can up? You we yeah. can't hear you. Hello. Is that better? Um, you mentioned sort of legislative activity, but I was wondering whether there, you know, a, a more accurate 
um, measure of democracy is about how reflective a parliament is about certain issues and what they're talking about and whether that is reflecting people's issues and whether you've thought about how that could be measured as a sort of form of effectiveness of democracy and whether other considerations are at play such as gender and um, the types of people in parliament and whether that has any implications. Is there a third question? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, do you think, I mean, I think um, the populist movement and Marx's influence, you have a tradition in Italy of liberalism, like the great philosopher Benedict Croce and the post-war statesman Gid de Gaspari, who um, I wonder if you could say about the future political liberalism in Italy as a relation to the populist which you've brilliantly analyzed. So uh, let me start. Uh, what are they talking about? I think this is uh, actually what are they working about? This is actually a very important question. Okay. In fact, I've had a look at uh, bills that these people had proposed. I mean, the bills I can only classify them by topic, right? And uh, by and large, there is very little difference. Now, of course, the way these topics are, these issues are interpreted. So one should go and look at the precise content of each bill, which I haven't done, right? But if we look in terms of, you know, if we classify them as, you know, labor market, taxation, whatever, we see that there is not a big difference except for one thing. So the one thing that I've noticed, actually, is that, and is actually in common for the Monty and for the five-star group in, uh, in uh, well, the Monty group also had, you know, made, made a long history in Parliament. But anyway, what, what they were working on in the last Parliament is that compared to the other parties, they don't, uh, don't present uh, almost no bills or very few bills on, uh, uh, that try to bring what, what in political science is called pork home, right? So uh, essentially what is this? This suggests, you know, that I want uh, money for my um, province for, to do some, or I want uh, sponsoring for such and such festival which happens in my village, or I want... Uh, uh, to create a new entity, you know, new public administration. So these are all bills that tend to essentially concentrate, bring money in uh, the particular constituency where they've been elected. And this is uh, kind of pretty much the same for all the parties except the Monty and the Five Star Movement. Precisely maybe because they are possibly less linked, you know, to the territory they come from. I don't know. That, but that's the only difference. Now, I think this is a very important question but needs, needs probably further research to see you know, if there is any difference in what they actually uh, vote uh, for and so on and so forth. Um, is populism a threat to liberal democracy? I mean, the, the majoritarian, so if we interpret populism as uh, you know, purely uh, following uh, in, any, in any respect in the, 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 the will of the majority, then yes, that this is a threat to liberal democracy because liberal democracy is precisely about safeguards for the minorities and a number of other things. Even when we think that uh, all policy areas should be directly under the control of a majority of the population, again, this, there may be problems with that, uh, with that approach. And I, I completely agree that interpreted in this way, this, is, uh, this could be actually a problem for liberal democracy. So it's really, uh, it depends on very much what, as I said, populism is just a buzzword. It's something, you know, everyone talks about populism. 
my impression is that often populism is just what uh, uh, you, you call populism what you don't like and a lot of public debate, you know, but this could be pretty much anything. And uh, again, I don't think from this point of view is necessarily uh, a useful concept if we do not qualify it better, if we don't say populism of this sort, populism of this other sort, you know, populism is... Uh, the newly elected president of Brazil is maybe populist, that is uh, uh, kind of completely pro-market, and we have Podemos is, is uh, populist, and the Northern League is populist. Right? What exactly are we talking about here, right? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I, I understood your question. That, yeah, so again, I, I'm not qualified to answer this. I'm sorry. I mean, really think that the future of liberalism in Italy, Italy is, is probably liberalism. Uh, we should ask questions about the past of liberalism in Italy before, because, uh, because, because the lib- Italy has, has a tradition. So don't forget, I think, that in Italy we never had, say, a conservative party like in the UK, right? So there is always, so the conservative camp has, uh, has been much more problematic. And I think, you know, there are various reasons for this. Some people say, oh, Italy doesn't even have a bourgeoisie in the sense that you find it, or doesn't even have a ruling class in the way you find it in other. So there are many ways we could think about the future of liberalism in Italy. I think I, 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 it's not entirely clear to me exactly what's the past of uh, liberalism, so I'm not certainly not qualified to answer your question about the future, right? So. Very well. Time for two short questions. The lady at the front and gentleman at the back. Ah, three. Okay, let's make it three. Yes, please. Uh, Sandra Guzman, a master's student of public policy and administration. Um, I was wondering about the politician or being a politician, what are the... On every job posting, we see the responsibilities and what we need from a specific person to fill in the post. So what would be these politicians' requirements to fill this, this post? One at the back and one there. The back. Yeah. Hi, I'm David, student at LC. Um, so. When we talk about populists, I think there's like sometimes here we talk about like people make a choice, a populist choice of a politician. But in terms of Brexit, like people say, like people makes a populist choice of a certain policy outcome. Do you think like there is a difference between these two types of populist choice? I'm going to make a bonus round because there are three questions on that side. So we make a five round, so keep it very short. Thank you. Keep track of them. My name is Giacomo. I am your, professor, your student in political science and political economy. I have a question. We started from a dichotomy between technocracy and populism. Um, but, like, for instance, the, list, the recent elections in Italy have shown that the Five Star Movement has been able to appoint technocrats as members of the executives, like the Prime Minister Conte, like Professor Savona, and many others. So is it that the two are incompatible, or that the ideology supporting one idea of technocracy makes it incompatible with populist views, if we can talk about this? Thank you. Um, Thank you, Professor. Um, I have a question regarding the use of the um, information channels from populist um, parties in the late five, four years. Uh, We clearly noted that 
the parties that use and channel the information in a more um, universal and effective way were the ones that were also uh, often populist. And as we also see in Italy, the Five Star Movements is an online party. And how important is, is the way that these political groups uh, reach people through information? And could populism be more a threat to um, information rather than democracy? And the last question at the front. Gentleman with the red shirt. Imran Rasul from UCL. So, Valentina, a lot of what you um, um, mentioned stem from the fundamental problem of asymmetric information between the representatives and, and, the, and uh, the representatives. And so we, th we think of that as often being uh, you know, the media having a big role to play in the transmission of information and updating what people believe. So rather like the, the previous question, what do you think has been the role of the media, both in Italy and in other um, contexts, to, um, to lead to populism, to lead to different types of populism, or to prevent uh, the, the, these, these parties? Okay. So maybe I'll, I'll start from, well, the last two questions, okay? Uh, about uh, media, certainly the populists uh, have been quite wise in their usage of uh, social, uh, social media and uh, uh, they've been able to probably reach an audience uh, uh, through the usage of the internet. That was, in a sense, if you think about this, this is almost uh, uh, in the nature of, this, uh, of these uh, movements because when you claim, when, when there is a claim that uh, there exists something like the establishment, this extends also to the intellectual establishment, to the newspapers, to the television. So the claim, and I'm not endorsing this, but the claim which is uh, often made is that basically they don't get coverage in uh, mainstream press, they don't get coverage in the mainstream, and that's somehow uh, the, uh, the, which may, you know, the, 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 the possibilities offered by the internet, by social media, might have favored the, the emergence of this movement, which is entirely possible. I don't think that, uh, um, that we have any causal evidence of that, right? So, of, uh, because also it's very difficult to estimate causal evidence. So clearly there is a lot of, uh, if you want, anecdotal evidence, uh, correlations, uh, uh, clearly these people are much more likely, for example, to, and this is very clear from any survey, to use the internet uh, and, so on, uh, and so on and so forth. Also they are younger, but even controlling for that, right? So there are, but how exactly the, the change in media landscape, and this is kind of something that is shifting in a fundamental way. So the market for media is changing completely, and we can see that the newspapers are in trouble, they don't make profit, and so clearly and what's going to happen in the future, I don't know, but this is, will clearly also shape, I think, public debate. And whether this public this, this, uh, this has political implications, I don't know if there is evidence, but we have evidence from other shifts. So from, uh, for example, uh, we have evidence about how television has had an impact on politics. We have evidence, very clear causal evidence about radio on politics. We have now also some evidence on internet more broadly on politics, and we have this evidence. We just don't have the evidence specifically on maybe these uh, uh, movements, but it, you know, it, presumably, I would say that it's, it's quite likely that there may be something there, right, so to be, to be seen. Um, so 
Technocracy versus uh, populism, yes. The, in fact, it's true that uh, some people have called the Five Star Movement a techno-populist party, right? So, uh, and in fact, they appointed a prime minister who's a, tech, who's a university professor. Uh, we, we typically have, and we have had, a, uh, for many years, the Ministry of the Economy has always been a technocrat, even in, in this government. So it's always someone called from the excess. So uh, there, there are, of course, things that uh, may point to what you're suggesting. I think that, uh, as I said, uh, uh, so there is something that the technocrats and the, and the populists have in common. So this notion that, uh, and, you know, this may lead to some convergence, this notion that there is a common good that compromise is bad. Now, politics, the, the traditional party politics is all about compromise. It's about the representation of different interests that eventually get represented in, uh, you know, in various forms. Then you have the unions, you may have strike, you may have bargaining. It's a very complex and messy process, but eventually leads to you know, some result, and you know, we are all unhappy with this result. Now, in the populist and the technocratic view, these are all noise. These are, you know, things that we can dispose with, and instead we should use, uh, we should look at the common good. Now, exactly how to reach the common good, there may be very different views about what is the common good and how to reach it, but there are clearly some commonalities in the techno in technocracy and populism, and specifically, I would say, the intolerance towards intermediate bodies, right? So that's... Uh, uh, referendum. Referendum is, uh, yes, I, uh, I think, uh, of course, the populists like referendum. The populists like referendum because this is when, you know, the people express themselves directly on the issue. It's in, not mediated. In fact, you know, even this, the, 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 when, when the populists elect, uh, say, the common people, this is an imperfect proxy. The idea of pure populism would be direct democracy. Okay? In fact, the Five Star Movement has precisely this in his uh, DNA. Right? So they really push for uh, the direct democracy, and they believe that uh, new technology will lead us to direct democracy. In fact, the members of parliament of the Five Star Movement are bound to uh, kind of, uh, in, in, some, in some special occasions, when the vote is particularly salient, to respect uh, online decisions taken by the members, right? So this is kind of unprecedented. It's not, it's also, you know, not in the Constitution, of course, because members of Parliament are free. There is no mandate, right? But clearly, yes, populists like, like uh, uh, referendum, and that's uh, maybe also Brexit is certainly not disconnected from all we have said tonight. Um, what would be the politician requirement? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. That's because a politician requirement is, uh, well, what is a good politician? It's, uh, certainly, I think, it's not the same as having a good doctor. That's what, uh, what I mean by having, you know, so you, you prepare, you are a good doctor, you are a specialist in something, and the competence to be a good doctor must be clearly very well acquired, and you need experience. And I think for politicians, I precisely, we know, uh, we don't know exactly. We, in fact, I think that in some areas, people may tend to reduce this to management, and that would be technocracy. So we, we need good managers. We need good managers in a position of uh, policy making. That's precisely what we've seen also with the professional distributions before, right? But that's, again, I, I would say, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the experience suggests that uh, good politicians can come from all sorts of different backgrounds and different sort of uh, uh, also studies or experiences. Right. 
Thank you, everybody, for very interesting questions, and thank you especially to Valentino Larcinese for this very inspiring lecture. Thank you all.